0: It is no exaggeration to say that electricity is the lifeblood of modern civilization. Without it, the world we know would collapse almost instantly. Even our prized communications, our electronics, those things that so define our lives nowadays would be useless within hours without a supply of electricity. That is why every year white house chronicle comes to the edison electric institute's annual meeting to take the pulse of the electric utility industry because it is so vital because it is so important in this program today and in one which will follow it i interview people who can tell you how healthy how challenged and what to expect in the electric supply but do remember The climate is changing, and a changing climate puts unique pressure on electric utilities. If it is too hot, you use more electricity, but it's harder to make it. If it is too cold, you use more electricity, but some of the equipment freezes up. And if there is too much wind or great storm damage, the electric lines go down, and we are in the dark. Being in the dark is not acceptable. That is why the electric utility industry at all levels is struggling with a thing called resilience to improve the chances that we won't be sitting in the dark. And if we are, it will be for hours, not for days. I'm joined now by Dan Hahn, who is a partner and practice leader at Guidehouse, one of the nation's most important consultancies for the electric utility industry. Dan, welcome to the broadcast. Thank uh, you. What are you telling utilities? What's on their mind and what are you telling them?
1: Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, really gotcha. do appreciate it and giving us the opportunity to share our perspective. Um, the number one thing that we always have conversations with our clients is around the energy transition. The energy transition itself is extremely broad. And there are very many, many facets around it. Everything from impacts to the customer, impacts to the generation fleet, impacts to the poles and wires that are out there, the resiliency aspects, the sustainability uh, initiatives that are out there, as well as, if you look at it, how do we work together in a decarbonized world? So that's the primary topic is decarbonization with the energy transition. And what are you telling them? Um, can it be done, or do we need
0: to keep burning some fossil fuels, and for how long?
1: It's really critical on how it's done. I think what you see today is a tremendous amount of goal setting. If you look at the energy companies that we work with and the, that are here at EEI, everyone has goals. We want to be carbon neutral, net zero, real zero, all the different terms you may hear in the industry is how do we get to the smallest carbon footprint that we can in a very aggressive timeline, whether it's 2035, whether it's 2050, those goals are out there. So those goals are there. How do we get there? That is the key thing around interaction with the federal government with regards to the infrastructure, I mean, uh, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. The federal government has taken a lead poll position to implement these programs because they are facilitating the funding behind it, targeted to very specific initiatives that that, the Department of Energy has initiated. It flows down to the states, it flows down to the utilities, and ultimately it flows down to you and I as consumers. And so that is where the how matters. A reasonable consumer worry is that this
0: transition could be destabilizing and that we could see more blackouts that, we won't have the reliability of supply, which is what we've all grown up with.
1: Absolutely. Uh, When you think about supply, no one really complains about their electric company until it's out, right? Reliability, we live in a first world country where we expect it. We believe it's a a right versus a privilege versus, you know, and we have clients in, in other parts of the world where perhaps it's not a right. It can be a privilege. They do have more uh, blackouts. They do more have brownouts, you name it. But when it comes to the transition and as a consumer, how do we manage the rollout so that it can be least, uh, least amount of impact, least amount of disruption so that you do end up having a reliable system? Because we all know, right? If you look at the energy curves, especially when the sun is hot and the sun is out there, it's shining bright, the wind is blowing quick, In the middle of the day, we have a tremendous amount of surplus of electrons, even in the U.S. grid. How do we harness that? How do we take that? How do we store that? There's multiple different technologies that are being worked on right now, but that is really important in regards to the how. Are the utilities
0: committed to getting carbon out? Or do they think they have to go on doing it the old fashioned way, and this is just so much political
1: noise uh, I think it's very real I think it's very real I think there's a, a, a tremendous amount of commitment to it you know that there's commitment to it if they are telling their investors and Wall Street especially the investor of utilities about their goals they are making commitments not only just to getting to net zero but then also other important factors around ESG that matter to them social justice having a, 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 a employee base that is reflective of the community the governance around that, that's still very much important and I do believe that these utilities are very much committed behind these goals.
0: The future portfolio includes uh, wind, solar, hydro, maybe geothermal, but also hydrogen. Uh, You know something about hydrogen, you actually teach a class on hydrogen at Northwestern University. Is it for real? will it make a big difference and should we rely on hydrogen carrying us through the transition or at the end of the transition
1: yes i do uh, have the privilege of teaching at northwestern at the institute for sustainability energy Uh, i do teach a class on hydrogen's role in the energy transition Um, all the different fuel sources that you just mentioned wind solar hydro geothermal nuclear when we look at hydrogen, hydrogen, we see the future of hydrogen as one of those diverse fuel sources that is viable. Now, I think it's really important to recognize that there's very specific use cases where that could be applied. When we think about shipping, long haul trucking, when we think about energy storage, right? It's a chance for us to take excess electrons, convert them into molecules that we could ultimately store, and then eventually use to burn and run turbines to generate electrons back again. The electrolysis process and then the revert back to the actual um, uh, production of electrons from the hydrogen molecules is a viable process that many of the utilities are taking pilot programs at. I had guest speakers from Excel, from Wisconsin Energy, from FPL that all shared their pilot programs that they're doing because this, this is a very much a real possible option to be truly net zero when it comes to green hydrogen production using excess solar and wind. But we're talking about hydrogen, or you're
0: talking about it for different uses, not as a replacement for natural gas as a turbine fuel. You're talking about it in heavy transportation, as in shipping, as in trucking, etc. Uh Is this an important distinction?
1: The natural gas footprint will be here for some time. Let's not kid ourselves. It is a fuel source that, that is part of the infrastructure we have in the states. I'm from Chicago, we need natural gas to heat our homes in the winter, right? There is no other alternative, unless you convert to electric, which that process in itself will take time as well. The key thing to remember though is, there will be a point in which the conversion to hydrogen will become much more, um, what I'll call, accessible and available. We can start with blending, right? You know, Anywhere between 10 to 15 to 25% blending with natural gas and hydrogen, with the existing pipeline infrastructure for transmission and distribution out to the distribution companies that provide the natural gas, there is a way to make an impact in regards to reducing our carbon footprint, decarbonizing with a blending mechanism as well that is starting to become much more, you know, you got to take it from pilot to, to now a commercialization of it and then how do you actually deploy it. But there is commitment from many of these energy companies to do that. Thank you very much,
0: Dan Han for coming on our broadcast. Today. My pleasure. Fascinating. I'm joined now by Gene Vold, vice president of technology at Northwestern Energy. Welcome, Gene. And by Charles L. King, uh, Senior Vice President of Technology or Senior Technology Officer and Vice President at uh, Evergy, which is in the Midwest. Uh, Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Uh, Tell me, how is technology dealing with the changes that are mandated by global warming? Would you like to start, Charles? Well,
2: um, like i like to say the technology kind of goes both ways. Uh, technology brings a lot of opportunities uh, that we must pursue and it also uh, satisfies a lot of needs that are out there, to your question as well. And so it kind of goes both ways. Um, and, and so, um, you know, a lot of the uh, issues that are out there uh, from a global perspective, be it global warming, be it the pursuit of decarbonization, a lot of these things, in terms of solution, in the end, will be technology-enabled. The challenge is to figure out um, how, to, how to leverage the latest advancements in order to most effectively address the problems, address the issues, and, and solve them, of course. Which, uh, if we had the answer to that, I'm not sure that, that uh, we, we would even be sitting here, maybe. But therein lies the challenge, but it's all about opportunity, because the answers are there, we just have to figure it out.
0: That's very interesting Jean these challenges are resilience decarbonization all of the changes that are taking place in the electric utility industry and which affect everybody who lives in the country uh, what particularly do you see as the critical technologies is for example broadband one of them
3: yes i think We had a discussion earlier today uh, just really about, and I'm I'm going to take your words, Charles, connectivity and really how important that connectivity really is. Um, We are in a connected world. Everything is always on, 24 by seven, and people want that instant information and instant gratification. And looking out and always asking ourselves, what's next, which is very important, what is next? And then what is next on the horizon as far as the connectivity that we're going to need to solve these problems, because we can't solve these problems without knowing what's going on in that whole energy ecosystem.
0: Uh, tell me, Charles, about connectivity in the utility. Is that what's happening on the lines? Is that what's happening in a power plant? Is that what's happening at the consumer meter? What yes. does it mean?
2: Yes. Uh, you just a great job. of of answering that question because it's all the above and more uh, because it really is uh, now and going forward is going to be about um, the availability of data, the timeliness of data, really said differently, real-time data, uh, whether that's addressing uh, renewable resources uh, and the fluctuations that can exist based upon the presence suddenly of renewable resources, uh, whether that is addressing um, the avoidance of outages in the field based upon, again, the presence of sensor data uh, to, to do fault isolation and detection and avoid outages or minimize the duration of outages, uh, whether that is predictive maintenance in the power plants to avoid uh, component failures before, you know, before they even happen, avoid them altogether. It's all of those things. Uh, again, uh, applying technology
0: uh, to be able to enable and solve for those. Um, where does broadband come in? Uh, broadband is spoken about a lot and we all know if we don't have it, our appliances don't work, we can't play our games or do our work. Uh, where does broadband come in and why should utilities have a particular interest in broadband? Gene?
3: The proliferation that we have of what we could call the Internet of Things or RTUs or whatever we deploy in the field as our sensors for all of this information, all needs connectivity and broadband plays a huge piece in this in enabling that connectivity. And without it, we can't react to the system as quickly as we need to react to the system and the operation of that system. And
0: I understand both of your utilities have signed up with Entirex, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. offers uh, spectrum for broadband.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, how important is that? Mm-hmm. Why don't you answer, Jean?
3: Our company right now is, is I'm going to say, dipping our toe in the water because we have some specific problems that we need to solve where we really think this is going to be a good fit. One of the, One of the large issues facing our utility right now, especially in our operating area, is fire mitigation. And reaction to fire mitigation, and you know what we're seeing in that changing landscape. Whereas a fire season used to be just over the summer months, now it's stretched almost throughout the entire year. And so, I think the opportunities for our particular utility potentially in fire mitigation, but I think also potentially this could easily supplant some of the older technologies that we still have. Laying around that are operational because the bandwidth is better here and the latency is much better than we have in some of our older systems.
0: Charles, latency is a word used in the telephone industry. Mm-hmm. The rest of us don't really understand it. Uh, please explain it. Well, um, you know,
2: as Gene was talking about, the, the, the words that came to mind for me were situational awareness and the timely the timeliness of that situational awareness, which goes to your latency question. So um, broadband um, will help us have that timely situational awareness of what's happening in the field in a proactive fashion that we haven't had before. And it allows us to do that with scale into the future.
0: Gene said fire mitigation. Mm -hmm. but First of all, you've got to be alerted to a fire, haven't you? Correct. Um, how big a problem is fire started by utility lines coming down? Well, it, it's, it's a bigger issue, as
2: Jean said, in her geography than it is for us in the Midwest. Um, but, but absolutely, again, that situational awareness is key mm-hmm. from a timing perspective to be able to uh, avoid, mitigate um, whatever the situation may be, right? Mm-hmm. For us, in the Midwest, um, initially, our use cases are more around um, customer reliability, uh, supporting our efforts to automate the grid, specifically, to do fault um, detection and isolation. So again, to avoid those customer outages or minimize the duration of them, but then as we go forward, leveraging broadband for additional use cases, be it around uh, meter data capture and transmission, be it around uh, DER, uh, EV use cases. Um, given the EV the is uh, electric vehicle. Oh, uh, okay, EV. EV. Uh, um, or even with the uh, the recent uh, increased focus on physical security uh, mm-hmm. for substations and in remote in the field, we're using that for expanding our use of cameras and sensor data. Uh, to detect possible intrusions.
0: Gene, there's been an explosion recently in interest in artificial intelligence, AI. Uh, are you looking at it in your utility?
3: Yes, of course we're looking at it. And there has been an explosion. And it is, it is, it is really the, the flavor of the day, um, as, as we're speaking right now, even though a lot of forms of AI have been around for a long time. Mm-hmm we have just not seen it deployed at the scale and the and i would say speed because if you really think about the power of some of these search engines and what that they can pull off of literally probably trillions of databases and pulling all of that information together and spitting out a sensible answer it's really it's it's both um, fascinating and, and Scary at the same time.
0: Charles, how do you see AI playing out in the utility space? Mm. That's a great
2: crystal ball question, but uh, again. But I, you're
0: a great <laughs> crystal ball <laughs> type of chap.
2: Uh, if you say so. But, um, you know, I, I think it is part of the solution that coupled with technology, because AI in and of itself is technology, it's a form of technology yeah. as well, right? But couple that with more of the hardware versions of technology to collectively solve problems um, that we don't even know exist at this point. I, I think AI will be key in that, just like the proliferation of data has become key, right? We we have more answers than we have questions at this point, and I think AI will help us um, identify uh, all the answers that are out there through automation um, and the opportunities that lie in AI. Now, certainly there there are valid concerns, which are in the press today for sure, around risk and the dark side of AI, which we have to try to guard against as well. But uh, in the end, I think the, the benefits will outweigh uh, those potential risks. But uh, just like data, we have to figure out the right questions to ask to harness the,
0: the harvest rather the, the answers that are there for us. A final question for so you were going to say something, Gene. Well,
3: I was just going to add, we were talking earlier, you know, about data. One of the things we didn't talk about was the importance of the accuracy of the data, especially when it when it comes to leveraging things like artificial intelligence to make decisions about the operation of the grid. I just, I had to jump in and express. <laughs> my viewpoint on accuracy of the data being so important and the security of that. Well data. I
0: think there's going to be a, a cottage industry in verifying data and mm-hmm. speaking to its provenance. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a huge problem Uh we was a, The Economist is running an article this week about a lawyer who went into court with a well argued case uh, citing all sorts of precedents. and. <laughs> It was torn apart because it had all been put together by AI, and none of it was true. The precedents didn't exist. It had been creative hallucination, which I think is the term of art they use in the AI. Uh, Please. um, Gene just
2: mentioned the word security. And thinking about your question as it pertains to AI, I'd be remiss if I did not touch on the value of broadband in helping us to privatize the capture and the transmission of that data and it will also be key i think as we go forward to privatize the use of ai as a as opposed to some of the public ai engines Mm -hmm. from a from an industry perspective to help protect our data and to protect uh the services that we provide i find that a
0: brilliant perspective thank you very much indeed and thank you both for coming on the broadcast today it's lovely to have you very well Philip Moeller is executive vice president for business operations and regulatory affairs at the Edison Electric Institute. Phil welcome to the broadcast.
4: Thank you Llewellyn. At this conference
0: there is a back story a sentimental back story. And that is that the president of 30 years Thomas Kuhn known to all as Tom is retiring. Uh, Tell me. What role has he had in these 30 years as the sort of leader in Washington of the utility world and their chief lobbyist?
4: I figured you'd be asking me this question, so I gave it some thought today. And as we both know, this industry has gone through remarkable changes in the last certainly 30 years. Sometimes those changes are caused by laws, sometimes regulations sometimes changes in public perception of business or the industry. And that tends to create some fissures within large organizations, whether it's energy-related or not. And what I find remarkable in looking back on the time that I've been associated or watching, or in this case, working with Tom, over, for me, it's been about 25 years, is that I know some of these big changes that rocked the industry. And I could go through the details, but we don't need to do that. But to see how his talent to keep the association together, there were some rocky times, but ultimately he kept it together and in a couple of cases kind of rebuilt it again. And that's a really unique skill set that he has, and I think it's quite rare.
0: How do you represent so many companies and come to a common point of view? When you go to Capitol Hill, for example, to lobby about retaining the dividend, or one of the great issues on regulation that affects everybody in the utility industry, how do you get them together so that when you walk into the senator's office or the house member's office, you are speaking for an industry not for a sliver of an industry.
4: Well, keeping the communication channels wide open with the various members is essential. But the other thing that's key is to remind people, as Tom often does, that as an industry, we're the most effective if we can speak together with the same voice. And so finding those common areas of agreement and agreeing then, to try and resolve those areas where there are disagreements. That's really the key in making sure that, in this case, the association, in our case, we know, we're known as the Institute, uh, maintains its, its stability and its membership so that, again, its objectives and and customers can be represented well.
0: There are 3,000, actually a little bit more than 3,000 electric utilities in the US. Yes. Uh, 2,000 of them are public power, largely cities and uh, similar entities, and then there's the rural electric cooperatives, and sitting on top of them with 60% of the business or more are the people Edison represents the investor own the big utilities, the big names. But Thomas managed often to speak for all of them. How do you do that? They are disparate.
4: Well, all of the different energy utilities, electric companies, all together, have some core missions that they share. Security, reliability, and, and others in terms of how they want to best represent their customers. And so there are a fair number of areas where we'll have no disagreements with our fellow trade associations because of those core values uh, and, and the challenge of delivering electricity in real time at 60 hertz, ultimately governed by the laws of physics. We all share that, and so that's some commonality as well.
0: I have often said that electricity supply and the air traffic control system have something in common you have to land the airplanes, you can't park them and discuss the issue, and you have to keep the lights on. You can't shut down for two months and retool. Right, uh, And that gives a kind of commonality, this discipline of keeping production steady.
4: Yes, that's right. And again, ultimately, it's the laws of physics that are going to govern how we operate uh, a system uh, as complicated as it is, and as you've heard many times, and I have too, the North American grid is the most complicated machine in the world, and keeping it running uh, is, is a big job for I a lot I find it people. a
0: very exciting machine, absolutely very interesting machine. Thank you so much for coming on the broadcast. Well. That's our show for today. I hope your lights stay on all over your life. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you
1: listen. We are there.